Good morning, Mercy Hill. It is so good to be with you. I go to a church when I'm not at the pastor's college because this is actually my second time going. I didn't fail the first time. I went, uh, my dad was a pastor at our church for 14 years, so he uh, dropped his job in television news in 1998 and went to the Sovereign Grace Pastors College, and I was seven years old. And that was the first year that Jeff Perswell was the dean at the PC. He's still the dean today. So it's wonderful to see multi-generational gospel legacy, and you guys are a part of that. Uh, It's wonderful to be here with you. We're from the Philadelphia area, and we have already spilled Wawa coffee on your carpet twice. My (laughs) wife did, and then I just did during prayer. So that's the Philadelphia, you know, you have made a Philadelphian feel welcome that you've allowed me to spill Wawa coffee on your carpet. I go to a church, one of the pastors there is Mark Prater. He's the, actually right now, he's serving as the president of Sovereign Grace, which is international. He's traveling a lot. He is uh, leading the denomination, but he prays for you guys specifically. I said, um, I'm at, uh, I'm at Mercy Hill and I said, even if you don't get back, I'll claim the authority to say Mark says hi, but is, 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 is there anything you want to let him know? He says, oh, he says, greet Ken, Sean, and the church for me. So greetings to you guys. Uh, he said, thank them for their strong commitment to our partnership and sovereign grace, and, and you guys are making, uh, stealthily doing damage for the glory of God in this world and in this area. So greetings from Mark. Know that he prays for you guys. Uh, If you could turn your Bibles with me to Lamentations chapter 3. I heard a gasp. (laughs) Last last week was the week after Easter, and I was wearing a black polo. I said, turn in Lamentations, and it was such a turn from Easter. Uh, It's like um, in... uh, uh, Christmas Carol, where it's just the angel of death, you know, the, the, third, uh, the third visitor. No, I, I, uh, the gospel's here, and we are going, I, I have faith that the Lord is going to speak to us today. Um, and let, well, let me pray and invite him. Lord, we need you. I need you. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for how your spirit's already at work. Even in this service, Lord, they're already proving uh, my main point today. Uh, And so it's wonderful to just come in and see you at work. Lord, I pray that your spirit would uh, remain here and at work in our lives. Lord, your word is the word of life. Where else can we go? Lord, by your spirit, make Christ large in our eyes to the glory of God the Father. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 2012, at Francis Xavier Ward Elementary School, located in Chicago's near West Side, students there had an unusual day at school. Conan O'Brien came in with the camera crew back when he had a talk show, and he had this premise. Young people don't know much about the blues. So what better way to engage in cultural education than to ask a bunch of seven-year-olds what bothers them and then improvise a blues song about it? The result was, in my opinion, comedy gold. Turns out seven-year-olds have no problem in giving fodder for blues lyrics. Nathaniel complains about getting hit in the head with a ball a lot in gym class. 
a fact that other classmates validate unprompted, so we know he's not lying. <laughs> Olivia doesn't like edamame, even though her sister and her mame, you see what they did with that, they really love it. Tommy is not allowed to have chocolate at school, except on Friday, which prompts Conan to say, one of the greatest themes in blues music is the man keeping you down. And this is the man keeping you down. Tommy wasn't done sharing and adds, and my sisters are weird. <laughs> One kid who stuck out to me was a girl named Summer. When Conan asked her to share something that makes her grumpy, she immediately just grabs her temples, uh, rubs her head in anguish, grimaces, and blurts out, when I think about how my sister took my teddy bear when I was probably three. <laughs> Conan asks her some clarifying questions, including like, why, how, how did you remember that? that? You're seven, that was when you were three. And uh, soon Summer admits, well, she sort of just dropped it off the bed, but I catched it. <laughs> Conan responds, I'm going to be honest with you, Summer. That's not the most terrible story I've ever heard. Summer, unfazed and still troubled, says, it is when you live it. <laughs> a biblical lament can be as foreign to our everyday modern lives as an authentic Beale Street blues song is to a seven-year-old. We're separated from the suffering described here, the suffering causing the lament by culture, by genre, by millennia, and we can think that the person recording their cry might be overdramatic, like Summer was. Or certainly, they must be ignorant of the New Testament command to do everything without complaining or grumbling or arguing, right? Well, we all walk around with the knowledge that life isn't as it should be. Even a seven-year-old knows that. When I personally struggle with something I know to be true, but it doesn't feel that way, or when I deal with the tragic effects of a fallen world full of sin, or when the Lord is bringing corrective discipline in my life, I am so grateful laments are in the Bible. Whether in Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, or the prophets, God saw fit to record deeply human, thoughtfully organized, and emotionally driven human reactions to fallenness. That's what these are. These situations with which we are, sadly, all too familiar, they present opportunities for relating to God. Biblical laments are directed at the right person, at God, who is the only one who can do anything about the situation, the only one who truly knows all of what happened. And he always responds in compassion. Even though it isn't the most terrible story he's ever heard. Laments contain faith and repentance, but they do not slap a smile on a suffering face. They aren't a showcase of the power of positive thinking that's popular in our age. It's not your best life now. It's not even, I'm fine, God's got this. No, it's real suffering presented to a real God. This book of Lamentations is exactly that, a carefully curated, beautiful book which functioned for the exilic and post-exilic Israelites. And far from overdramatic, it presents the true heart of a suffering people and their God-fearing representative. 
It is the lived experience of some of the darkest times in history for the people of God. And Jeremiah, the likely author, speaks for Israel as a whole. And we're not peeking into a private journal, but this is a public collection. It would be memorized and recited every ninth of Av, which is when the nation would, as a nation, fast to mourn the exile. Each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This wasn't only helpful for memorization or, or organization. It depicted a complete expression of grief and repentance. Every letter of the alphabet was needed to express the depth of loss and the full repentance that was called for. God's people needed, and they still need, to be reminded of the breadths and depths of the effects of sin and what sufferers are to do, say, and believe in response. The title of my message is When Misery Remembers Mercy. And for those of you here who are currently suffering, or maybe suffering is just in the rearview mirror, but you know it's up ahead again, the Bible speaks to how you're feeling. We can all feel this way. But this text doesn't leave us there. When we are suffering, deeply suffering, truly suffering, if you're like me, our requests usually aren't that extreme. We're just looking for hope. This lament shows us the way to hope. In Lamentations 3, verse 16 through 24, I believe the Lord wants us to see that true hope is found when human misery is met by the memory of divine mercy. True hope is found when human misery is met by the memory of divine mercy. And this true hope is not a new hope. It's an old one for many of us. But that doesn't make it any less real. Hope takes three shapes in this passage, which we'll see as we read. I'm going to read in stages. And the first is a lost hope. A lost hope. And I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. This is God's holy and authoritative word. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I'm going to stop there for now. We have dropped in mid-lament. This chapter 3 lament, this climactic lament of the book begins in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. And the lamenter gives picture after picture proving his point and what pictures they are. The picture in verse 16 is one of torture and shame. His teeth are broken, damaged, as he relates his experience to literally eating dirt, rocks, and all. He cowers in the shame 
the ashes of shame for sin. Not ashes he's collected for a public display of repentance, but ashes from the ruins of the city that was once his home. And notice that according to the lamenter, the Lord has done this. He has made my teeth grind on ashes. Somehow, this torture, this suffering, this shame is caused by a sovereign God who saw fit to have his children suffer in this way? Oh, it's a hard view of God. But he goes on to say in verse 39, Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? He's not resisting. But that doesn't make it any easier. In fact, I think it makes it harder. In his view, he's under the thumb of a sovereign, righteous God bringing justice for centuries of rebellion. And I wonder what the more indelible feeling is for this lamenter, the broken teeth or the cowering in shame, tramples in the dust. Perhaps they feel equally permanent. In verse 17, body and soul alike have no peace. There is language here of God literally removing peace from their grasp and keeping it out of reach. Not only can he not find peace at the time, but there's a sense of God depriving him of it, extricating himself from it and holding it at a distance. He has forgotten his happiness. He doesn't even recall what it felt like. Forget about any light on the forward horizon. There's not any light on the horizon behind him. Numbness. No comfort ahead. No comfort behind. Not even a glib motivational poster, an empty cliche, or faint nostalgia. This is not a passing season of depression, but this is an all-encompassing, hellish reality. When I I have a stomach bug, I often have difficulty remembering what it felt like to be healthy. Have you guys felt that way? When you're sick, you're like, I don't even remember what it felt like to run out in the sun. What did I do when I was healthy? (laughs) Of course, after a few nights, I begin to regain some of my strength and my feeling of health, and things just go on as they were before. By God's grace, this, this sickness was an interruption of health, and that was disillusioning enough. Here, it's as if health was a brief prelude to a life of sickness, affliction, and shame. The devastation here is so permanent. Destruction so widespread. There is no sense of any return to normalcy in this person's lifetime. Have you ever felt this way? Do you fear feeling this way? Well, this leads, understandably, in verse 18, to resignation. This isn't just a Hey guys, I'm out of energy. No, the writer is saying, my endurance, my strength, my dignity was based in my relationship with God. God was faithful to his covenant. We were not. And we had so many chances. So many chances. His patience was so strong. His mercy delayed for so long. Now there is no relief. Instead, a continual memory of affliction in the front of his mind. Their hope from the Lord, the hope they knew of in the promises of the covenant to Abraham, to Moses, 
That was removed from them. Hope is not only distant or departed, it is dead. Imagine the questions that run through the Israelites' head in the lamenters' thoughts. Does God see? Is all this affliction just? Have his eyes moved elsewhere? That would be the final stroke. So the lamenter gives in verse 19 a desperate cry. Lord, remember. Mediators between God and his people have cried that cry before. Lord, remember the covenant. Remember how you chose us. Remember how Moses obeyed. Lord, remember how David obeyed. Have mercy. All those cries are hollow now. All of them. The only thing he can ask God to remember, the only appeal he has is his own affliction and his wanderings. Jeremiah was set adrift for the rest of his life and would die in a foreign land, not even the rubble of his former home, just like the people. And this despair is not melodrama. It is the resigned acknowledgement of anguish earned, the curse that sin brought. The suffering described here is not simply a suffering for righteousness sake, not persecution, not a test of their love for God, not a trial that will make them stronger. It's the result of sin against a holy God who has been so patient with them, so long-suffering, so slow to anger. Prophet after prophet had warned them. The Lord made his law perfectly clear. He had made a covenant with them. And now it seems... Grace has finally given way to the grave. Earlier lamentations say, for the Lord is in the right. This is Lamentations 1.18. For the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Lamentations 1.9. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy, in perfect tense, the enemy has triumphed. Back to verse 19. It's not hard for the lamenter to remember his affliction. In fact, it is impossible. It is continual. Wormwood and gall, they're they're bitter painkillers. He is eating bitterness as his food, but the pain has not gone away because this pain goes deeper than flesh and bone. This is not just torture to the body, but it's despair of the soul something that cannot be healed without hope. But the stanza doesn't end there. The stanza doesn't end. Suddenly, number two, a remembered hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. An interruption. 
mid-stanza. This sudden tone shift, which is even more dramatic because the previous two chapters didn't have any of this. This tone shift wasn't because he got it all out. This isn't the end of Lamentations. There's a couple more chapters, and they are filled with laments. This wasn't a change in his circumstances. There wasn't an unforeseen army over the hills to surprise enemy and ally alike. Not a sudden revelation from God that things would change. And oh, how we can crave that sometimes. Lord, I just want a revelation from you that things are going to change. The lamenter didn't get that. Nothing that the eye could see was different. But this I call to mind. We have to go word by word here. But yet, this is the first glimmer of anything different than lament. Where does this come from? What can be generated out of despair itself? Nothing. But this, there is something else. There is another reality. Yes, his suffering is real. Yes, it is from the Lord's hand. Yes, it should not be negated or minimized. But something else is true. But this I, these laments so far have been crying out to God to remember them. Lord, remember my situation. Remember my afflictions. Remember my wanderings. But it's not God who must remember something for the lamenter to be able to persevere, for the lamenter to have hope. No, it's the lamenter who must remember something. But this I call to mind. The Hebrew word here, if we were to get literal with it, is make this come back to me. This is recall. This takes work. This was not in the forefront of his mind, as we saw in point one. Neither do I think did this just pop in his mind. He didn't have it. He labored to dust it off and bring it back. In moments of suffering, what comes into your mind? What pops in your mind? What do you call to mind? Is it your hopeless circumstances? Is it the painful memory of what you did wrong? Maybe it's what that other person did to you. And that is what comes to mind. What fills your mind again and again. When those thoughts flood in, any other thought seems useless, an empty distraction. Bringing those things to mind brings no hope. This I call to mind. Not this I do, or this I see, or this I feel. No, this I call to mind. The battle for faith in deep soul despair is in the mind. And it involves recall. And here's the content. God. Who he is. Who he has proven himself to be. He has remembered us. You guys were just called to do this. Just think over the past week. And by God's grace, I think we all have things from this past week. 
the Hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord has not run out. There has not been a blip interrupting the constancy of God's committed love for his people. Many translations say loves, steadfast loves. They keep coming. They don't deserve it, but the Lord is just as loving as he has always been. His mercies continue to come. Undeserved grace, a covering over of sin. And he may have a mouthful of gravel and a soul full of shame. But God knows. And God is still there. And God is still God. But with his eyes, the mentor could not see any evidence of this in his current circumstances. And when the lamenter could not find proof in Jerusalem at the time that God was still merciful, where did he look? He looked to the sun in the sky. H.L. Ellison says of this verse, the covenant had called Israel into existence and the Lord's loving mercy to what he had created would not end. The very fact of awakening to a new day is in itself a renewal of God's mercy. And even that is something that we can hold on to, the same as the lamenter did. He continues, man has passed safely through the night, a foreshadowing of death. Listen, church, as Surely, as the night cannot prevent the sun from rising, so our sin cannot prevent his mercies from flowing. What a truth. But the lamenter says a few verses after our passage in verse 32, we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. So what gives? Are his mercies new every morning or has he not forgiven? Well, they have not yet experienced this forgiveness. I'm sure they were doubting it would come. But the lamenter is clinging to this. I know my God is merciful. In the fine art world, in the setting up of a gallery space, a good exhibition designer carefully considers the optimal viewing distance. For any given piece. For a large piece with a broad scope, yes, the viewer can examine intricacies and fine details up close, but they won't understand the full scope. They won't get the author, the artist's intent. They won't understand the true nature of the piece as a whole. What's needed is room to step back and to understand the full visual story of the piece. And what suffering does is it narrows our vision. Trying to understand God's character through an isolated moment or week or season is like trying to view a 90, foot square, a 90 square foot mural from an inch away. We must step back We must expand our time horizon and see the entire painting. The lamenter is not drawing from things in his recent experience or even his dreams about the future. No, 
only on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture, in this person's history, in this nation's history, in this world's history, can this lamenter be confident that they're not cut off from his steadfast love? And I I wonder, what was the lamenter able to recall? Maybe it was the preserving grace of God over Noah, carrying him through judgment, promising he would not judge the earth in the same way again. Maybe he remembered and imprisoned Joseph. In uh, chapter 39, his lowest moment where he's in prison for something he didn't do, for being righteous, and he's in prison awaiting death, it said he received steadfast love and favor from God in his darkest moment. And then at the end of the book, Joseph recalls the sovereignty of God at the end of his life. Perhaps the lamenter remembered how God delivered his people out of centuries of slavery in Egypt and what God said about what that revealed about him. In Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and his children's children to the third and fourth generation. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, who keeps uh, the faithful God, who keeps steadfast love, not for three or four, but for a thousand generations. Maybe he remembered some of David's final words of praise for who he knew the Lord to be. 2 Samuel twenty two fifty one, Great salvation he gives his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. I'd bet money he had psalms come to mind, which spoke of the Lord's character. Psalms like 118 or 136 that repeat the refrain as many times as the lamenter needed to remember the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Maybe a psalm of lament. There's plenty of those. Like Psalm 31, which pauses in the middle of a lament to say, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because... You have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Jeremiah could look back in his life. He was personally delivered as well from a well. When Jeremiah is able to call the steadfast love of the Lord to mind, it's not abstract, it's stories. He is stepping back. He is remembering the character of the Lord as revealed in his words and his deeds in the past, even when the present is devastating and the future is bleak. Jeremiah did not find comfort in his affliction being shared. In fact, the chapter begins with a lonely affliction, suffering alone. Yes, our suffering is real. Your suffering is real. We have experienced the discipline of the Lord or the confusion behind trials that seem random. I've gone through times where the Lord has seemed distant. Our faces have been pressed up close against the painting. Yet, there is a suffering on behalf of a people that I don't think we can fully relate to. 
And Jeremiah, the lamenter, probably felt the same way. As a man who followed God, who spoke his truth to a people that would not listen, yet suffering for the sins of the people along with them, he acutely felt the spiritual ramifications, not just the physical. Yet, he was able to remember the steadfast love of the Lord that endures always, the mercies that continue to be poured out. But even Jeremiah, in his fight for hope, could not imagine this part of the Bible. That God himself would become the man who would see affliction. Jesus, the Messiah, who suffered for our sins when he committed no sin. His bones were broken. He tasted the wormwood and the gall and refused it. He would not dull the pain of punishment, but instead drank the bitter cup of the wrath of the Father down to its last drop. He cried out in lament to his Father, My God, why have you forsaken me? Steadfast love became incarnate. not just for patient long-suffering, but to deliver himself over to death on a cross. And we celebrated this a couple weeks ago. He was raised to provide a sure hope, to prove that the lamenter's faith here was not in vain. Even the grave gives way to grace. We have what the lamenter didn't have. We have the fulfillment of the promises of a faithful God. The culmination of the commitment to show steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. He is the one who is there to remind us, to help us recall by revealing himself. And when the memory of mercy meets our misery, it inevitably leads to praise. Verse 23, he shifts back to addressing the Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Not in lament here, but in worship. Always great, always able, always true. His devotion on our behalf is more than can be, more than can be imagined or remembered. But laments continue, at least for now. Yes, God delights in joyful gratefulness. And it is good for us to recount the deeds of the Lord to each other with excitement. We've done that already today. But sometimes, a simple act of worship, a simple acknowledgement to God of who He is in the midst of pain is the sweetest sound in the ears of God. The remembered hope is the saving loving, faithful character of God, now made known to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That brings us to the third shape of hope, last one, an enduring hope. Verse 24. And I got to read verse 23 again. (laughs) Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is a hope to lay hold of. It is not enough to remember that an abandoned, covered, forgotten well has water. It's another thing to find it, clear it off, and draw water from it again. The lamenter speaks to himself. His soul is roused to hope in the Lord as his sure, enduring inheritance. Contrast this with the last time he spoke to himself. In verse 18. When hope from the Lord seems far off, hope in the Lord is an act of faith. Who he is, who he has revealed himself to be in Christ, not in what he might do for you in the future. Our hope is not in what is seen or experienced. The hope that is offered here is not this too shall pass. By God's grace, many things do. And that's a gift of him, from him. But that's not why we hope. Our hope is not in the trials growing us. That's not our hope. If we say that to ourselves, if we say that to those we're caring for, we give them temporal, limited, false hope. Because the hope is in our growth. No. We have hope because our God is worthy of our hope. And nothing else. And even if we're never given back what God took away, like God did with Job, even if he doesn't give us the perspective of God's sovereignty and how it functioned in our lives like he did with Joseph, if he doesn't give us a single thread of redemptive function to our situation like he did with Samson, if he doesn't seem to make the time pass by faster like he did with Jacob, if he doesn't miraculously heal like he did with Hezekiah, God's steadfast love has not ceased. His mercies are never stale. His eye has not passed you by. He has not forgotten. In Christ, he has entered your suffering. Christ is your portion. If all else is gone. And in that, you can rejoice. The steadfast love The mercies of the Lord came down in the form of a man, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. R.K. Harrison says, the believer has a living hope because he trusts in a living God whose promises are as sure as his judgments. And God proved that on the cross. The living God has fulfilled and will fulfill all promises in Jesus Christ and in him alone. If you're looking for a devotion to do this week, I would highly recommend the first half of 2 Corinthians. That makes this connection over and over again. 2 Corinthians 1 say, All the promises of God find their yes and their amen, their truth, their faithfulness in the Son of God. It is the person of Christ who changes our perspective and nothing, no one else. In chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18, so we do not lose heart. Losing heart is losing hope. We do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, and oh, it doesn't feel that way sometimes, but this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, it's false hope, but to the things that are unseen, true hope. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jeremiah's hope in verse 24 was not in the promise of the Lord's future inheritance for his people, not in the land, influence, the people he promised to restore. No, the Lord and him alone is his inheritance, his future security with which to endure the present, the unseen, eternal, enduring hope, not a change of circumstances, but in a relationship with God that makes the very span of our lives here on earth tiny by comparison. And the Spirit is given to us. We sung it this morning. The Spirit is given to us, in us, hope in us, as the guarantee of our hope until we acquire possession of it. God himself gives himself as the seal of the promised inheritance. Our inheritance is God himself in Christ. He is what will endure when this earth will have faded away and our afflicted, sinful bodies replaced with the incorruptible, eternally in relationship with Him, never to lament again. And in verses to come, the rest of Lamentations, suffering continues, but there is one difference. Repentance is called for. Even God's revealing of our sins and disciplining us for it must be viewed in light of who we are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, the Lord uses sufferings of this earth to bring us to Him, to show us that our hope is not in this life. Yes, all blessings come from Him, but there is one inheritance, there is one hope, and that is Christ. Put your hope in Him today. Christ took all our suffering and sorrows upon himself and offers in himself a hope that will not fade away. 2 Corinthians 4, once more, 17 through 10, or verse 7 through 10. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's our earthly sinful bodies. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Yes, but not crushed. Perplexed, oh, perplexed. But not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. We would not remember if it was not for the Lord's help. Isn't that true? He wants us to recognize his steadfast love, his mercy, his faithfulness. He has revealed his steadfast love, his gift of daily mercy, his unfailing faithfulness, and our Savior, our hope. May our hope result in praise and glory to God. What mercy we have in Christ. 
poured out like rays of warmth from the reassuring sun. We suffered. He lived it. Great is his faithfulness. In our misery, he has remembered us, suffered for us, and is our great hope of glory. It was good to be with you. Amen.